it would be really helpful to have your Bibles, Bible app still open at Isaiah chapter 4. So as we continue in our series, we're up to the second week as we uh, move through. Uh, on the news, there's also some notes. So there's an outline. So if you'd like to follow along with that, please use that. There's translation points in Korean and Dinka. But right now, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank you so much that in your kindness and mercy that we can come to your word, not by our own power, nor our might, nor our intellect, but in the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, would you please be at work right now that we might have a greater clarity and greater vision of how you are working out your purposes and how we are enjoined to them through your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Isaiah, in many ways, is a tale of two cities. A city destined for destruction and a city destined for restoration. God is speaking through Isaiah with a vision of both judgment and hope. Remember, Isaiah is writing almost 3,000 years ago. God's people, after the glory days of King David, have been split into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah with the capital of Jerusalem or Zion along with the temple in the south. That's where Isaiah lives, in Jerusalem. The city is a symbol of God's people along with the fulfilment of God's ancient promises. As Isaiah speaks, taking stock of the current situation of God's people, things are not good. Not only is their worship insincere that is showing up and going through the motions, but actually the true worship is not orientated to God, but to idols. Even making the matters worse, not only are they actively living in sinful ways, but they're also failing to do justice and be a light to the nations. As God's people, they're wayward in both the object of their devotion, but also how that's expressed with their lives. Things have gone comprehensively awry. Their nation and their land is in tatters, and so God warns the people through Isaiah that judgment is coming. Israel, like a beautiful tree, will be cut down and reduced to a stump. Many years ago now, when I was walking in Western Tasmania, I remember being totally captured by the towering magnificence of the, the human pines. They are really glorious trees. They're staggering in size. Some of them are thousands of years old. They, they stand majestically amidst the forest. As you look at them, you think, wow, they're really too big to fail. Yet as we were walking in this forest, we came across one such tree that was 700 years old, but it had been cut down because it became rotten to the core. All that remained where that mighty tree once stood was the carcass of a trunk and a stump in the ground. And I remember as I came across upon this and looked at this, I remember imagining what would have been quite a harrowing sound in this remote forest to hear the chainsaw or whatever they used, uh, turned on, cranked up, as that tree was cut down 
and fell to the forest floor with a mighty thump. Isaiah is warning Israel, that's your future. A city destined for destruction. And we know that the Assyrians would besiege Jerusalem in 701 BC. The Babylonians would defeat Jerusalem and exile the people in 587 BC. Isaiah warns back in chapter 3, the Lord Almighty has a day for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, to be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted that day and the idols would totally disappear. As the people heard that warning, and as it becomes plain to see, you can imagine, it'd be really natural for them to ask, is God still working out his purposes? The stump looks pretty final. Is this it? Has God abandoned his promises for a people and their role in the world? Maybe there's been a time in your life when you've asked that very question. Perhaps you're asking right at the moment, wondering as you look at the world or things in your life, is God working out his purposes? Have God's plans fizzled? You can imagine Israel, upon hearing Isaiah asking that question, at surface levels they take stock, that's what it would sound like. As Jerusalem is laid bare, that's what it would look like. But Isaiah is clear, this judgment is not where God's plan and purpose end. For in that day, so that refrain, that phrase is littered all throughout Isaiah, and we see as that phrase is used, it's referring to both judgment and hope. So we've already noted last week as we began the series that there's a whole bunch of warnings in chapter 1. In fact, they continue right up to the beginning of chapter 2. But at the end of that cycle of warnings, there's this hope. In the last days, there's that phrase, the mount of the Lord's temple will be established at the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and the nations will stream to it. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That's the first cycle of warning and judgment. But then after chapter 2, or beginning after that, that, that hope, we once again see that cycle continue from judgment to hope where we land in chapter 4. So from chapter 2, verse 6 to 3, we see the judgment to come. But then chapter 4, verse 2, in that day, there's that phrase again, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. In that day, or in the last days, uh, brings together not only that impending judgment, but an anticipation of the day of the Lord when God will indeed bring his purposes to completion. From the stump, even through the judgment, God will bring a branch to life. So that's the, that's the vision that, that Isaiah gives us in chapter 4. A vision to hold on to when we're left wondering if God is working out his purposes. A vision of a saving branch, a holy people, and a secure future. So first, a vision of a saving branch. So verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. 
So when we hear that phrase, the branch of the Lord, our minds might immediately rush forward to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, in which Isaiah, you might recall, points to the coming king, the Messiah, who is described in this way. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. But here in chapter 4, branch is likely not a specific reference to the coming Messiah, like it is in chapter 11, but actually more broadly, the vision of God's unfolding, saving purposes through a remnant, through those who remain. This is God's people in God's place. So the scriptures are marvellous. It's, it's beautiful and glorious. That is, they will know God's provision and contentment. It's the pride and glory of the survivors. That is, God's saving work is plain to see. Remember, so much of God's purpose for his people was a promised land. A land where, where God reigns and where people dwell in prosperity and peace. It's a complete contrast to what it will be like under the attacks of their enemies. Attacks which will leave their land stripped and their cities burning. But Isaiah's telling them that even as judgment unfolds, that they can hold on to the hope that this is not the end and that those who survive will be a sign and a signal not only that God has not given up his purposes, but he's working out his purposes through them. People who have been chosen, not because they are faithful, but chosen to be faithful. Remember the vision of this time of fulfilment in chapter 2. In the last days, where peace will reign, when not only the people of Israel, but all the nations will stream to God. Isaiah, of course, doesn't know how that's exactly going to happen. He also doesn't know precisely when. But we do. It's a vision of the last days when Jesus will return to judge the world and set it right. How will God fulfill this promise? How will he graft them and us into his purposes that we might become this glorious branch? Through his son. Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 15, that the way we become grafted into God's saving plan into that branch is through him. So we read in John chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Through Jesus, they will be his people. Through Jesus, we can be God's people. And we look forward to this future, not as some sort of disembodied state wafting about, 
but a future physical new creation. So that descriptor, the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory. It's when every one of God's promises will be fulfilled. That's the hopeful vision that Isaiah wants the people to hold on to even as judgment, as judgment falls. That's the hopeful vision that we can hold on to even as our world falls in around us. This week, as I had the great privilege of sitting beside someone in hospital who is seriously ill, I was reminded once again of the extraordinary way in which we can cling to this hope even when we're not sure what God is doing. In in worldly terms, there was very little certain for this person. The doctors aren't sure what's wrong. There's no clear prognosis. There's uncertainty of what lies ahead. Yet even amidst all of that, the person said to me, this is something that everyone must face. But I can face it as difficult as it is with the assurance of what really lies ahead because of Jesus. Second, a vision of a holy people. So verse 3. Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy, all who recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. So this future vision of the city restored is also one with a holy people. It's not just an empty city. The word holy there, it means uh, set apart, made clean, and belonging to someone. They're the ones, we're told, whose names are recorded in the book of life. They haven't survived judgment because of an accident or because they're lucky. They haven't survived because they're holy, but that they will be made holy. And as we read through the preceding chapters, you think that is no small feat. Uh, there seemed to be no limit to the creativity of their sinfulness. When Isaiah says the Lord will wash away the filth of the women, I hope that's really obvious that we shouldn't read this as some sort of suggestion that only the women were sinful. All the chapters preceding have had plenty indictments on the men and particularly on the leaders who were largely men. This is part of a whole picture that Isaiah has painted in his painting of the people's corruption. The word filth is pretty graphic, actually. It's actually connected to that which comes from the inside, so it's actually connected to, to vomit. That's what filth is relating to there. And so Isaiah is saying that the people's ways are like the repugnant stuff that's churned up from the stomach. So when Isaiah says God will wash away that filth, cleanse the bloodstains, he's not saying that God is going to tend and clean the outer wounds that have resulted from war but he's pointing in time in which there's going to be a complete dealing with the people's sins. So how can they possibly get from here to there, from corrupt to holy? Only by the Lord's doing. So note who is the cause of their setting apart. Verse 4. The Lord will wash away the filth. He, that is the Lord, will cleanse the bloodstains. So it's part of the great fulfilment of the promise back in Genesis chapter 17 that they will be my people and I will be their God. The the very same promise that we see fulfilled in the last days in Revelation as it's pictured that they will be my people 
and I your God. The Lord is paving a way to make it possible. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, there's an incredible scene in which one of the characters, one boy, Eustace, succumbs to the gritty thoughts of his heart and is transformed into a dragon. And it's an image of his, his brokenness in which his humanity is tainted and marred by his sinfulness, part of the human condition. But right towards the end of the story, when Eustace encounters Aslan, so the lion who represents Jesus, Eustace begins to peel away the layers of the dragon skin one after the other. But just when he thinks he's, he's done, he's not. He can't remove it all. And Aslan does what Eustace cannot do on his own. See, Eustace could only deal with the surface level of the problem. But Aslan, Eustace says, tore right to the heart. Isaiah is showing us that God is promising to comprehensively deal with the problem of sin. It's not by our own doing. We can't make ourselves clean. Like Eustace, we can't do it on our own. Like Israel, they can't make themselves holy. It's only the Lord Jesus who can. And that is what Jesus, on the cross, has precisely done. So as the writer to the Hebrews put it, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. It is really such liberating news that when we come to Jesus, not only does he graft us into himself, but he makes us a holy people for himself. It's not luck. It's not an accident. It's not because we're so awesome. No, it's because Jesus on the cross took the full weight and consequence of our sin that we might be set, from, set free from the bounds of evil and look forward to that day when sin will be no more. It'll be finally put away. Jesus faced judgment on the cross so that in him we can face the judgment that is coming. That's what we have to look forward to because of Jesus. Third, Isaiah gives us a vision of a secure future. Verse 5. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. So as soon as we uh, hear that reference, the cloud of smoke by day and the flaming fire by night, our minds should immediately rush back to the Exodus uh, when the people are on the way to the promised land. As God's people wondered how the Lord was working out his purposes and when that might be, they were not left alone. But God guided them, was with them, and protected them. We see that in the cloud of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. And when they set up camp, what God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle. When they finally built a temple on Mount Zion, God dwelled with them there. It was the place where heaven and earth met. But now, in this vision, Isaiah is pointing us to something altogether new. A time when God just won't be with them in the tabernacle or the temple, 
fact, that will no longer be needed. But God will dwell with them. God will be with them comprehensively. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we know God dwells and guides us now, helps us to live lives that match our holy status that is yet, and also that which is yet to come. All of history is orientated toward that goal. It's what we read in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is a vision of a future which is secured by God in which God's people will know his presence. He'll dwell with them. His glorious presence will envelop them day and night. His provision, we've already been told, of the fruit of the land, sustain and content. His protection, a shelter and shade, refuge and hiding place. It's heaven and earth joined as one. You know, it's often companies and organisations, they'll, they'll cast visions, you know, big vision statements in order to try and inspire us and extract money from us. But all those vision statements look pretty ordinary compared to this. But it's exactly what Jesus will do when he returns. A branch, a holy people, a secure future of God's presence provision and protection. As the people face judgment, that's the vision that Isaiah wants them to hold on to. It's so comforting. But it's also a future that we can share. Jesus' death is the death of our sin. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our future. All those years ago, when I saw that stump in the ground in that forest, it was beyond my wildest imagination of how life could spring forth from that. When Israel fails and falls, it would have been beyond their imagination of how life could flow from then. In our lives, as we look around the world, we too can be left wondering, is God working out his purposes? The answer is a resounding yes. And he's inviting every single person to be part of those purposes too. To hold on to this vision that it might keep driving us to Jesus and living for Jesus. 
there's going to be times in our lives, and perhaps you're in the thick of it right now in your life, in which there's something that's really causing you to be left wondering, what is God doing? And sometimes the answer to that is, we just don't know. God doesn't dismiss that. God doesn't diminish that. But what he does is he invites us to take those questions of all those unknowns and that we would place them and nestle them into the certainty of what Jesus has done and what he will do. In Jesus, we are part of the branch. In Jesus, we are made a holy people. In Jesus, we are given a secure future. Let's pray. Precious God, we thank you so much for your goodness, your love, your mercy. Lord, we thank you that as we look to Jesus, that we can have every certainty that you indeed are working out your purposes and that you will bring them to fulfilment when he returns. Lord, we also thank you that as we look at the world, or as we look at our lives, and at times we can be left wondering, are you working out your purposes? Or we can ask, what are you doing? That you welcome us to bring those questions to you. Lord, we thank you that as we bring those questions, that we can place them in the certainty of Jesus, that as we look to the cross, his death and resurrection, that we have every guarantee that you will indeed bring your purposes to completion when he returns. So Lord, please help us to hold on to that vision and to proclaim that good news that it might shape how we live and trust this day. In Jesus' name, amen.